Hello and welcome to Refi Radio's Innovations in Real Estate. I'm your host, Will Moyo. Once a month, in partnership with Park Madison Partners, Real Estate Fund Intelligence will bring you a discussion with one of the real estate industry's most innovative voices. On this month's show, Nancy Lachine, Park Madison's founder and managing partner, speaks to Greg Bates, Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of GID Real Estate. Nancy and Greg will discuss the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the real estate industry and GID's approach to navigating a national real estate platform through the crisis. Thank you, Will. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us. This is Nancy Lachine, and I'm here on Zoom with Greg Bates. We're recording this episode during one of the strangest times in my 30-year career. Um, It's the fourth deep downturn I've experienced, the first being the SNL crisis, and the last one being the GFC, which is when we first met, Greg. You were at GE, and uh, we worked together. I was at Park Madison Partners on the public-private investment program. Of course, COVID-19 is different, and it deals not just with finance or the economy, but with human interaction, and frankly, it brings the whole importance of community to a new level. So first and foremost, we hope everyone is staying safe and healthy. And Greg, thank you for joining us and agreeing to speak on such an important and timely issue. Of course, I'm happy to do it. Thanks for having me. Great, well, this is an important week. It's April 1st, yesterday is the time to collect rents and debt service, and so we'll finally start to collect some data about the impact of COVID-19 on the real estate business. GID, um, well, you've been in business for 60 years. The company is vertically integrated. You're a real estate developer, an investor, and an operator with a large portfolio, over 100 multifamily properties across 13 states, um, some 30,000 units. And as I understand it, you also have 19 active development sites um, in nine states. Um, And if that weren't enough, you also have an industrial portfolio and uh, uh, with both existing and and development assets and some office. So, Greg, is GID's chief operating officer overseeing the portfolio and asset management, as well as investor relations and capital raising, Um, It sounds like you have quite a lot on your plate, especially right now. Yeah, when you hear you describe it like that, it seems a little daunting. But, um, you know, GID is fortunate. Uh, You know, when you enter tough times like this, everybody's weaknesses are exposed, either at the corporate level or at the asset level or your capitalization structures. But uh, at the company level, we have a very liquid balance sheet. We don't employ any corporate leverage. So we have tremendous capacity to participate in down markets. So the entity risk people may feel during some of these tough times is really off the table for a firm like GID, which gives us a lot more flexibility. The other wonderful thing we have is really uh, long-term partnerships with our investors, some as long as 15, 20 years. And all of our partners have, you know, core investments with us and a generational outlook. So we don't have closed end funds with uh, a lot of leverage employed, uh, which is nice when you go through these brief periods where there's disruptions in the credit markets, et cetera. Um, The other thing I would tell you about the firm that makes this transition uh, in a period of uncertainty a little easier is we're a vertically integrated operator. So we don't 
rely on any third parties uh, at the property level. We don't do any third party management. So we're entirely focused on uh, our properties and on operations today. Uh, and the real secret sauce, I think, for a GID are the people. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, but that is certainly what's helping us get through this time period. Well, that you're very, very fortunate, it sounds like, in many respects. Uh, I'd love to start just asking how you've adjusted to remote working. What kind of issues have you had? What kind of surprises? Um, any best practices that you can share with people? Um, and do you think it's it's going to adjust the way you operate in the future? Uh, so that's a good question. Um, I'll save for last whether it'll adjust how we work differently in the future. Um, but I'll start with some positive surprises. Uh, the first is that video conferencing is new to many of us. Uh, we have a lot of folks that use it within the company to communicate with some of the remote workers we have with our West Coast office in San Francisco, but it's actually proven to be highly effective. And we use Microsoft Teams, but we use BlueJeans and Zoom and a bunch of other technologies, all of which have worked well. <clears throat> and then I would tell you the other pleasant surprise is that people are adapting. And, you know, change is good. Disrupting normal routines, I think, is, is helpful. And we've gotten a nice glimpse into the personal lives of a lot of our team members. And some of that is humorous, uh, but some is serious. And so it's strengthening bonds as you kind of see people in their home offices and how they interact with spouses and kids and pets and all the things that happen. Uh, and we've had some some fun experiences. You know, we've got one of our uh, members of the leadership team who has young children, and his first video conference was hiding out in an unfinished basement next to a boiler, and it looked like he was in some third world prison cell, but he was trying to find the one quiet spot in his house. Uh, and just yesterday... I'm sorry, he, I'm trying hard not to laugh too much. <laughs> That's very funny. <laughs> It was great. It made everyone's day. And we, we probably had 20 people on a team call yesterday and someone's smoke alarm was chirping due to a low battery. And you saw 20 people stare up at their ceiling trying to figure out if it was there. So, you know, a lot of that humor that gets injected has been good. You know, we pay an awful lot for team building events and we seem to be getting a couple months of it straight uh, here. So, that part's nice. And I do, you know, when you really sit and focus on silver linings, there are some terrific things that have come out of this. We exchange emails that are called the daily humor email in some of the departments. We do virtual happy hours that we kicked off on St. Patrick's Day because nobody could get together for a beer. We do coffee talks in the morning. So there's an awful lot of that that I think has just been enjoyable and strengthened bonds despite the, the distance. Uh, but getting, getting back to maybe the more serious question you asked, there are some best practices that have come out of this and some lessons we've learned quickly. The first is it really impresses on you uh, how actively you have to manage. And in the office with people nearby, maybe that's less critical, but when you're remote, establishing priorities, assigning tasks, measuring progress, making sure that we have 
people being held accountable for results, all of those things become important when we're not with each other on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and we've gotten better at that. Uh, actually on my team, because we don't need to be uh, directly interfacing every day, productivity is actually up. We've reduced kind of the number of meetings we have, people aren't commuting anymore, and we shut down a lot of special projects that people are work, were working on. And that has been tremendously helpful to focus on critical initiatives uh, and to prioritize our tasks in a crisis. So we have had uh, some lessons learned and we've had some best practices emerge, which is great. Wow, that's fabulous. And by the way, I, I feel like I want to be added to your daily humor email uh, <laughs> distribution list. But um, tell us, you mentioned that productivity is up. And one of the things you've done, obviously, is figure out how to establish priorities and measure results. How, do you, how are you measuring productivity in this environment? So here are some of the things we've done. The, the primary aspect of it is simplifying the business and having our employees focused on specific tasks and allowing them to complete those projects in a linear fashion. And when you're in the office, there are so many competing priorities and we have so many folks that are multitasking that a number of those projects kind of uh, span out over too long a period of time as we consistently find new different prioritizations. At home, I think we're doing a better job of identifying critical projects, staffing them, and then measuring them through to completion. Mm -hmm. So that has been good. And a lot of the uh, side projects that we had have fallen by the wayside in a crisis. Well, that's, it's certainly true that this is a moment in time where we're all very focused on what's essential and, um, and also caring for one, one another in the process. Uh, so let's um, maybe shift focus a little bit and talk about what's actually happening in the portfolio right now. I know um, it's early, but what are you seeing in terms of April collections and you know, people paying their rent? Um, are you offering any concessions? Um, and maybe give us a little color on how this plays out in your portfolio between market rate units and units that would be more affordable small a affordable and whether there's any differences across the country because you do have a broadly uh, diversified geography. Okay, so there was a lot in that question. Why don't I start with the broad trends uh, just from a traffic perspective? So a few weeks ago, our traffic was down 75 to 80% and we were stuck in the abyss. Now, our traffic is down more like 35%. So we've seen a pretty nice rebound here in the last two weeks. Our lease applications are also doing better. Across our portfolio, you know, a typical week, we might have 300 lease applications come in. At the trough, we fell into the 60s. Now we're back up this week to trending to around 235. So you know, we're only down about 20% right now as we've seen a bit of a rebound from that trough a couple weeks ago. Our renewals, as you might expect, as people are focused on staying in place in a moment of turmoil, are trending up. 
So when we look at our 30-day occupancy, we started all of this in a very healthy spot, like most of the other multifamily operators, and we're trending towards holding at 95% occupancy for the next 30 days. I am worried about what that longer trend might look like, depending on how long COVID-19 takes to play out. But as of right now, things feel a little more stable than two weeks ago. But I'll tell you a little bit about our portfolio, which I think will help. Uh, we actually have a very high quality core portfolio. So our average household income is $124,000. Our average rent is about $2,400, $2,500. And you end up with a demographic where the rent to income ratio is about 24%. So we have a fairly high uh, quality renter base with pretty moderate rent to income ratios. So we ought to weather this storm better than the class B and class C assets. We do have some assets that just have a different demographic profile and those are performing a little bit worse. We do see aged receivables ticking up on those So even though it's not a big part of our portfolio, we can discern some trends that are different between our, call it, A assets and the B assets. We're also seeing some different trends by market. So it was a great question. Some of the hardest hit markets are down 50 to 60%, whereas we've seen traffic recover to only down 35% across the portfolio. Those markets are what you'd expect. New York City, Seattle, Boston, places where COVID-19 and uh, some of the lockdowns have happened earliest. Um, Houston, oddly, despite being hit with COVID-19 and an oil shock, has oddly held up uh, for at least these initial few weeks. I expect to see Houston to trend a little differently going forward. Uh, And we're fortunate that we're not in some of the hardest hit markets that are travel and entertainment oriented markets like Vegas, Orlando, some of the big service worker markets of Tampa, Phoenix. Uh, We don't have a presence in those markets. And that I think has been fortunate today, even though for the prior three years, they've performed extremely well. And then one other comment I'll I'll give you, Nancy, when you sit and you look at the markets today, even though we entered this pretty healthy across the board, there are supply concerns in some markets that are still there. And places like Dallas, Denver, downtown LA, uh, those have had an influx of supply in the urban cores. So to have the additional supply and some of the lease-ups compounded by a little bit of this softening in demand could be tricky. And then why don't I answer your last question, I think, which focused on collections. So you're absolutely right. Yesterday was a big day being April 1st, and everyone has kind of been waiting to see some of their results. When we look back at how we've done this month compared to prior months, Early on, we were trending down as much as 10% from prior months. But yesterday, things worked as we hoped they would. Uh, We had a very big collections day. Uh, It was only down a few percentage points from prior months trend. So through about 60% of the rent roll for this month, 
we're only off about two and a half percent. So surprisingly good performance. And we're going to wait and see if it holds up. There's still 40% of the rent roll that's due. And we'll, we'll have to see if these trends continue. Obviously, nobody has a crystal ball, but what are you thinking about or concerned about for May going forward? I think there are probably two things we're thinking about. The first is, what will the residential trends be for May collections? Uh, I think April 1st came pretty quickly on the heels of some of of the unemployment. And so we are concerned about how COVID-19 advances across the country and what May collections will look like. So I gave you a pretty rosy perspective of how we're doing to date. We'll have to see how the rest of the April rent roll comes in and what May looks like. And then the one thing we didn't touch on was retail. We do have about 175 retail tenants as a part of some of our multifamily mixed use projects. 48% of them are temporarily closed right now. And about a third of them have begun discussions with us on rent abatement or rent relief. And so obviously retail has been a big focus along with hospitality nationally for people. And even though retail is only about 3% of our portfolio NOI, it is an area that's going to come under pressure. Not inconsistent with a report that came out earlier this week from Green Street, which said that obviously the public markets have forecasted a lot of this news and a decline in values across the board for real estate. But Green Street came out and said residential's just been hit way too hard and they put out a buy order on uh, the public companies. And um, if what you're seeing is uh, indicative, um, they might be right. We're on, I was on a call yesterday with folks who have um, a large portfolio in the UK. And as you probably know, in the UK, rents are collected on the 24th of the month. So they had March data, um, and they were down across the board between 30 and 60% across all property types. So, um, so that that's the only other data point we really have at this point. Um, so I, that's that's terrific news, and I'm really maybe it's the fact of sitting here in New York, which is where um, where I am. You're in, in Boston or near Boston. Um, are you in the suburbs? Where are you actually? I am. I'm just moment? west of the city, so I'm pretty close. Okay, so being being in the Northeast, I think. Um, it feels maybe different than it will feel in other parts of the country. But when you mentioned that you're up from 300, you were down to 60 and up to 235 units um, this month, that's fantastic news and, you know, quite encouraging. So um, I hope that's a portent of, of, of good news to come, or um, maybe it's just your particularly strong portfolio, which you have some spectacular properties. Uh, And I'm curious, one of the things I've heard from people who have um, multifamily, say, in New York City, um, and and you're closer to your demographic, is that the physical, they may be pretty fully occupied, but the physical occupancy during COVID-19 has dropped to, you know, substantially, maybe as low as 50%. Do you have any sense of what's happening with your multifamily units in, say, New York City? Yes, we are not nearly down that much. Uh, Most of our residents are remaining in place, even in New York City. So 
uh, that trend seems a little more dramatic than what we've seen. But I can tell you uh, on a personal level, a number of my friends who work in New York City are not in New York City at the moment. So uh, we don't see it as much in our portfolio, but I do hear it anecdotally. Do you have condos for sale in the portfolio as well? We do, only in New York City in our Waterline Square project. So uh, the condo market in New York City on the ultra luxury side, which is where we participate, has been softening for a while. So we entered this in a period of weakness for condo sales. And obviously this further stalls out uh, how the condo market is doing. We have been very fortunate to have a unique project. So we're one of the top performers uh, in New York in terms of luxury condo sales. And we actually do have people uh, in active discussions with us. So we've sent out about eight contracts in the last couple of weeks and are actively working with potential buyers. But I do expect that this is going to uh, just be, unfortunately, another headwind for the New York City luxury condo market. So, you know, one of the nice things I mentioned early in the podcast about our strong balance sheet, uh, we have paid off our condo loan. So we don't have any debt on the condo project. So for us, there's no gun to our head. There's no pressure to sell into weakness. And we'll continue to manage through. That is a uh, very unique advantage, I think, in, in terms of the condo market. Why don't we talk a little bit about um, just acquisitions and dispositions and financing? That's sort of a good segue, because you're also an active buyer of residential. Um, presumably, you have been a borrower in the market and, and a seller. Um, What's happening from your perspective right now, if anything, on the transaction front? For example, I've spoken to folks who have had many deals under contract and they've walked from many or most of them thinking that the price today is lower than it would have been than it, than it was at the time that they negotiated it. Um, and others um, have said that they've had a very hard time getting any kind of financing, that financing's just broadly not available. So what are, what are you seeing at GID on that front? So I'll start actually with some dispositions that we had in the market. We were uh, working on four different sales and we effectively pulled the plug on all of them, understanding that when we go through these moments, uh, you will see a lot of uncertainty, a lot of price discovery, and retrades as uh, the market adjusts to changes on the debt side, changed assumptions. And we took all those off the table and pulled those dispositions. Uh, on the financing side, we've actually been very fortunate. We have very few debt maturities. Uh, we've got one loan extension we're working right now, and it is challenging, even a short-term extension um, but when you think about new transactions, one of the biggest hits you're seeing in the multifamily space is just the immediate seizure of the debt markets that happened during the downturn. So, you know, it, it used to be that multifamily debt was probably the most liquid of any of the asset types. Life companies in our core space have always been terrific lenders. We were doing a lot of 10-year interest-only transactions in the, call it 2.85 to 3.1% range. 
the floors now that have been established by the life companies are in the four, even the four and a half percent range today. The agencies similarly uh, were out of the market and not competitive for a while versus the life companies. The agencies have pulled in a little bit. So mid to high 3% debt might be possible if you're going working with Fannie or Freddie, but that is still a dramatic change from before. My perspective when we started looking at transactions was just pricing in the change in 10-year money, let alone year one or two diminished NOI, we were off kind of 6% in terms of values from the debt alone. When you start thinking about what is an appropriate risk premium to invest today, given the uncertainty and the diminished NOI in the first two years, I think it's probably fair to say that if you were to buy in this period, there probably is about a 10% correction. CBRE says across their asset types in the US, they think the market might be off 10 to 20%. But my personal perspective is you're not gonna see the multifamily market transact at those levels. Uh, there isn't a lot of high leverage in the space. We've all learned our lessons from the last crisis that multifamily bounces back pretty well. So I would agree that the public multifamily REITs whose stocks have fallen 35 to 40%, which is probably a 30% decrease in gross asset values, uh, are, are probably a bit oversold today, given the performance I think we'll see out of the multifamily teams. Uh, but that compares to during the great financial crisis, all of those folks were off more like 65 to 70% uh, and their gross asset values were halved. And it may bounce back. I mean, I think the question is how quickly do we bounce back? And um, there's a lot being written about that as we, as we speak. Um, and of course, none of us really know the answer. I was speaking with someone yesterday who was, um, has a fair amount of multifamily development going on. And their question was, you know, what are market rents? And obviously they started these projects with one view of market rents. Um, you know, where, where will they be when they, when they, when they actually come on online? And uh, none of us clearly know that answer either, but, um, Probably not the time you would start a new development. And I think for probably many of your projects, um, you're probably hoping just to get back under construction with some of them because uh, we understand that construction's been halted in uh, many of the major cities right now. So we have seen state mandated work stoppages uh, affect us. It is very different project to project, market to market. Even in markets where we don't have the state mandated work stoppages. We are seeing labor shortages from COVID-19 and some minor supply chain issues. We have a cabinet maker in Pennsylvania who shut down, uh, but it really is different market by market. The work stoppage in New York City affected our Waterline Square project. We have about three months of construction left and then some punch work but we fortunately there have enough inventory of apartments and condos that we can manage that downtime okay and still have enough inventory to move people in. Chicago, uh, there is no work stoppage, but we have two or three subs who have notified us that they're opting not to work and keep their workers home during COVID-19. 
And I contrast that with Houston, where we are continuing it full force. We had about 80 people on site on a construction project last week. That's increasing now with more trades uh, to about 100 people. So it is a pretty different situation depending on what market you're in. Even here in Boston, where they have, uh, have a construction stoppage in place, we're building a project with a partner in the suburbs here, which is unaffected by that. The only other data point I would uh, give you, Nancy, is that we have been involved in a number of unit renovations or clubhouse work. We've voluntarily shut a number of those down just to try to respect the fact that we have tenants who are working from home and we don't want a lot of new people on sites. Uh, given all the apprehension about COVID-19. So we've actually pulled back on things uh, that are <clears throat> discretionary projects on our end. I don't know if you want to stick your neck out on this, but um, we're all looking forward and saying, when we do come out of this, and obviously we will come out of this, um, what will it look like? You know, will it be a V? Will it be a U? Will it be in more of an L-shaped recovery? Um, based on the data that you have and the portfolio that you have, uh, is, does GID have a house view on this? And are you, how are you making decisions going forward? I wish we had a crystal ball. Uh, I don't know that we have a solid house view, but I can tell you that we are far less focused on the depth of the downturn here, whether GDP is off 12 or 16 or 20 percent, and we're far more focused on the duration of the downturn. So that's one big item. And I use the analogy of a lot of cars being stuck at a red light. This economy abruptly stopped and is sitting at a red light. And even if we get through COVID-19 and the quarantines are lifted and that light turns green, well, not every car instantly makes it through the green light. So some will get out of the gate, some businesses will be back up and running quickly, and others will follow more slowly. And there will be some cars that don't make it through that light uh, and are left behind. So that is the big unknown for all of us. We do take some real comfort in the magnitude of the Fed's response and the speed of their response. So I, I do think that will help put a floor uh, on some of what we're seeing today. And we're hopeful that the recovery comes uh, pretty quickly after COVID-19 clears. I, I don't expect a V-shaped recovery, but I also am hoping we don't see an L-shaped recovery. I have in my mind uh, an article I read about a Nike swoosh-shaped recovery uh, not quite as steep as a V, but something where we do come out of this and start gaining forward momentum quickly, uh, it just extends out over a far longer period than I think some of the people hoping for a V recovery would like. Um, maybe if I can just um, finish up by asking you about your interaction with your existing investors. Um, that's something we've spent most of our last few weeks uh, focused on. How has your interaction with investors changed and um, you know, what, uh, what kinds of communication are people asking for? Well, the biggest change obviously is frequency. We are in daily communications and check-ins with our investor. Uh, the transparency is remarkable. 
you know, we're sharing trends on a daily basis. Uh, we're kind of learning about things at the same time. We're providing that information to our investors to make sure they're up to date and in the loop. So that I think is uh, something that has been an easy adjustment for everybody. One of the other nice things that's come out of this is, you know, the traditional investor relationship is kind of a report out from the manager on material events or updates. And now it is very much a two-way street of us sharing information, talking about what the investor's hearing, what we're hearing, us learning about their perspectives on uh, the denominator effect or other issues that they might have better visibility into than we do. So, you know, it has been actually a pretty smooth transition, but we're trying to make sure that they have real-time data every day, just in case they're stopped in the halls and their board or people in their company want live updates on what's happening in the portfolio. Yeah, this someone described yesterday that one of the things that really um, exemplifies good leadership right now is meeting people where they're at. And it sounds like you're certainly doing that with your investors. And, you know, it creates new partnerships. And as you started out by saying, too, you know, there's a silver lining to this because you're you know, building stronger bonds um, and creating relationships that are in many ways more human than just the work relationship that we were used to before. So I'm, I'm really... Um, Delighted to hear that the portfolio is performing as well as it is, and that's great news. Hopefully, continues because um, we certainly can use all the good news we can get right now. Um, and Greg, I very much appreciate your taking time out from what's an incredibly busy schedule um, to join us today. And thank you very much. We look forward to checking back in um, in a couple of months and um, seeing how you're doing. Thank you, Nancy. That's all for this week's episode of Refi Radio's Innovations in Real Estate. First, I'd like to thank Greg for sharing his insight on how his firm is navigating this unprecedented time. Thanks, as always, to Nancy Lachine for the discussion. We'd also like to thank Park Madison Partners for working with Refi on this podcast series. For more information on the firm, please visit their website at parkmadisonpartners.com. This episode was produced and edited by Peter Benson with help from Samantha Rowan, Rudgali Sinatis, and myself. Theme music is by Jazzhar. Thanks everyone for listening to another episode of ReFi Radio, in partnership with Park Madison Partners. I'm Will Moyo, until next time.